Yeah, we can record it and then um, they can choose whatever they like. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Hello, welcome to The Northern Voice. In today's episode, we'll be talking about LGBTQIA plus identity and theatre in the North. I'm going to be using the word queer from now on. With me, I've got Meg McGrady, musical theatre composer, creative and producer who wears many hats. But right now, they are working on The Phase, a musical set in the North about queer teenagers in high school. I also have Felix Mufti Wright, writer, actor, who has a theatre company called Transcend Theatre. Felix writes plays um, for them. Uh, they also do a lot of community outreach with young trans people, especially young LGBT people and survivors of domestic abuse. And finally, I have Jackie Bardalong who is a drag king, also an actor. So tell me, um, tell me about your work um, as a queer artist, Felix. Um, so my work as a queer artist is all about just making sure it's underrepresented stories that we're telling and that we're telling them authentically and by the right people and that we're not necessarily bringing them across as like a devastation or a tragedy story obviously you know it's important to explore the hard bits of being queer but it's also important to find the joy in that because we need to inspire people to be open about their experiences rather than being scared about possibilities that could happen and for me with queer theatre it's not just what's on stage for me, I like a whole queer production team. So we're providing opportunities for people who don't have as much access to the wider mainstream jobs and stuff like that. You know, obviously the employment rate with trans people is really, really high. So we want to make sure that we're providing as many opportunities as we can for people. Thank you. Uh, Jackie? Yes. Um, well, I guess my work started uh, about four years ago when I took to um, a drag king contest um called man up in london i was in leeds at the time and it was the first sort of real performance that i'd ever done on a stage apart from anything that was in school um and it was very it was rather terrifying but um from then i sort of i looked at my drag and my work in that scene and the cabaret scene and the queer scene as a sort of um i mean it's very political in itself um, but uh, my work is informed by sort of quite strong underlying political messages that I have in some of my shows. Um, it's kind of DIY comedy meets lip sync and just satire and parody um, and a bit of clowning. Um, so I mix all those ideas together and I entertain but also try to educate. Thank you. Meg? I think it would be impossible to look at my work without looking at my queerness and transness. They're definitely very integrated in there, whether it's writing shows or whether it is, I also am a co-producer of a new company called Queerly Productions, which is a company all about focused on raising up queer performers, um, particularly those from marginalized genders like women and trans people. Um, but it's important to like 
not only just focus it within yourself, but also to send that out into the rest of the queer community to, for people who are come from less privileged backgrounds to try and raise up everyone. It isn't just about raising yourself up. I think that's pretty essential to queerness and queer theatre in general. Felix? Yeah, um, I just wanted to be a bit more specific <laughs> about what I actually do, because <laughs> I realised I actually didn't say that. <laughs> um, so I, I have a theatre company called Transcend Theatre, which I started with my friends Ailish and Christy, who went to Lippa. So they're from Newcastle and Manchester, and obviously I'm Scouse, so we couldn't really get much more northern. <laughs> and um, and we write, I write plays that are written half in dialogue, half in spoken word poetry, that um, yeah, just explore difficult topics, but normally in a satirical way, like it's all written for Scouse people, so written in very scouse dialect so sometimes when i'm showing it to other people they have to translate it a bit but <laughs> that is like what i do and i do a lot of the poetry type sides i'm really into spoken word and stuff like that so it's a bit more about specifically what i do you know how in um quantum physics right um they say that um the past is present right now we're in two dimensions we can see the past right now can't we because we can see the stars and they're like way dead so the so i always think the future must be present within us with around us at the same time and i've said that to art one artist said to me well yes it is it's in the stories we tell okay the stories we tell are about the future and how we imagine it so that maybe um so i was looking at this book, Cruising Utopia, you might have heard of it, Jose Esteban Munoz. And the first line, right, is queerness is not here yet. Right. So what he's talking about in this book is that queerness, it's about imagining the future. Um, it's we don't actually we haven't achieved it. And we can achieve it through hope. Right. So I think Meg might want to say something to that. What does that mean, Meg? <laughs> I think it really does speak to, you know, talking and thinking about queer utopia and like dreaming about what a future could look like, I think is really important for the present. Like you said, in terms of we, especially I think in the North, even still in London, there are spaces, but especially in the North, I feel like whenever I come back and bring my transness and queerness back home, there is a kind of disconnect and I think it's important in remembering when we're coming back to these spaces or whether we're living in these spaces and occupying them is making sure that we are dreaming and trying to push for a beautiful future. I think that's that's right. I think um, what Felix was saying earlier about uh, work made by and for queer people, particularly trans people, and not always about sickness and death. I think that a lot of queer work has been about dealing with the problems of daily existence. I think this book suggests that we need to make work which is hopeful because actual queerness, we haven't found it. We don't know what it is. We're working towards it. Is that right, Meg? Would you agree with that? And Felix? I totally say that it's it's something that we're working towards and we're working towards finding stories that are not just centered around the really hard parts about being queer. It's we also need to find the stories of joy, the stories that are not related to queerness, that are, but are queer, if that makes sense. 
Exactly. So I thought, Felix, perhaps you could explain how your work fits into that, if it does or it doesn't. Yeah, of course. Like, I think for a long time, you know, trans, queer, gay stories have been told for straight people, for cis people. I think it's been about explaining what queerness is for a long time rather than actually exploring it. And I think, like, my play is about um, domestic abuse and it's, like, two characters and it shows the signs of domestic abuse and how they present themselves differently in queer relationships because it's not what you typically think of when you think of an abusive relationship and how it shows itself differently. And But in the play, it doesn't mention once that they're trans because it's irrelevant to the story but important to the context. So it's only to be played by trans actors. The outreach is only to be done by trans people and stuff. The education is completely trans-centred. But it doesn't mention that in the script because why should it? You know, it's completely irrelevant to all of the happenings in the play. And I think that's what's really important is that, like, we talk about the important things but don't frame our lives as a tragedy because they're not. And the euphoric moments we get are so much, like more valuable than happiness that comes easier to other people if that makes sense oh, totally it's not just about it's not just about the daily struggle uh, which is often portrayed as negative and it's always about explaining yes you're right and often there were, i remember a time uh, when all the queer work was about coming out stories and how difficult it was do you remember that there was a period when <laughs> It's just all about that. So, Jackie, you also said your work is very political. So I was wondering how it fits into this conversation. Um, yes, I. My my stuff is sort of based around individual shows that I create. Um, and as I mentioned, there's a little bit of a message that's underlying on top of the entertainment and the comedy. Um, as an example, I mean, I think my queerness is not necessarily at the center of it, but I think it comes out as just the character that I exude. That is, um, I didn't mention my, my drag name and that's Siggy Moonlight. Um, and, um, <laughs> and Ziggy with how I perform him, um, it's, it's sort of, it, it, he takes various, he's a vessel and he takes the form of various guises um, and explores them. So um, one of my sort of probably well better went better known characters is uh, a sort of an old Asian kung fu master that um, you have you're familiar with from the film that we rec- I recently starred in casting Fu Manchu, and um, it's a sort of an a, a look at my Asianness and my Asian identity, and also the identity of Asian males in and their portrayal in the media. Um, it's in a nutshell. The show, the show, sort of. It's, it's, it's I come on as this old Asian kung fu master, and I then sort of through a series of things that happen to me, I end up doing sort of a really, really ridiculous striptease, <laughs> <laughs> and to prove that Asian men can also be sexy. Um, <laughs> It's really quite difficult to explain. <laughs> you probably have to watch it to see it. Um, but uh, the heart of it is that there's lots of different identities about. Um, I guess it's part of my branding. It's it's like 
you know, there's there's my Asianness, there's my queerness. It's storytelling at the heart of it, and that's how mm-hmm. I always see all of my um, pieces. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess what comes from that, whether it's a political thing, that's how I see it. But whether my audience see it as political, I leave that to them to decide. Um, but at the end of the day, I want them to be entertained. <laughs> I'm interested in the intersectionality of race and queerness then in your work, Jackie. So it's interesting that you've, um, you're have you going there. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. For example, um, what's it like being a queer artist within a predominantly white uh, culture? I mean, are you able to express your Asian-ness easily or is it is it to struggle or are you just seen as exotic? Well, certainly in the drag community and the cabaret scene, it's really, it almost seems quite commonplace to talk about that because everyone's so lovely and open and you right. know, generally quite left in terms of politics. So that's kind of a, it's, you know, it's a very open conversation in that, in that mm. sense. Um, but I'm just thinking in terms of my experiences at drama school, which is a very different world. It mm. is a, it is, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I'm just thinking there are about 40 people my year and I think I'm one of only th- uh, three, four mm-hmm. people of color. Uh-huh. Um, and so for me, it's almost, it, you know, I, I was expecting that. I knew the, the statistics and I knew I was entering a world which is quite similar. I used to, I grew up in um, East, like, well, I, I went to school in Dartford and I went to a school with pretty much everyone was white. So that's a, also, again, I've been in those kind of circles and there's not so much openness in talking about that. But I mm. think it's kind of the sense, you get the sense that everyone wants to treat you know, the teachers want to treat everyone equally, as if they're on an equal standing, even though that's not necessarily reflected in the world of casting and, and the entertainment industry at large. Um, and I've noticed specifically, it's not so much my race that's um, a question, it's more my gender and my presentment of that that has become mm. quite a central part of my education. Um, I've, I've, I, the past few plays that we've done, I'm cast as, I'm cast as quite feminine characters. And at first I was quite, um, taken aback by that. You know, it's, it's usually these middle-aged women because everyone's the same age in drama school. You have to kind of get young people to play old people. And so I was cast as a middle-aged woman who had a, who was having an affair with a, with a man and she was really desperate to sleep with him in a certain scene. And I was like, oh goodness me, this is not at all what I would, um, I would never ever play on the stage. But also I kind of just embraced it and uh, somehow found a different part of myself. <laughs> so it was an interesting journey to say the least. But in terms of race, that's not really come up um, so much. Well, thank you. So Meg, uh I'd really like to hear more about your work. What is it? What do you do? Tell me about a show that you've made or um, or the one that you are working on. So, yeah, The Phase um, is a musical about a group of young queer kids in high school. They haven't figured themselves out completely yet, which is kind of okay and part of the narrative that gender and sexuality is a journey. But the main focus of the story is the fact that they are in a band They think it's set in 2015 when queer marriage um, has just been legalized in the UK. And they suddenly think, great, 
this is it. This is the time for us to perform a queer song in our school concert. And then the school instantly backlash. They're banned from the school practice rooms. And the show is kind of about them finding their voice of protest and finding themselves along the way. Um, and I think that's, for me, this is a story that's really important as it's very much influenced by both my time and my writer's time in high school at around the time of 2015. And just, it's it's so important to talk about the young queer experience, especially as it's a show that's aimed at young queer people who are still sometimes undergoing these struggles of facing subtle homophobia, facing things that are homophobic or transphobic without being labeled as such. Um, so that's kind of where the show comes from. And it's very much touches on like, the main character is non-binary, but never actually actively comes out by the end of the story because they're still figuring that out. But it very touches along points of my journey. And it's, it's, very, it's a show that's very dear and near and dear to my heart. Felix, could you tell me about a piece of work that you're making at the moment, please? Yeah, of course. So currently we're Transcend Theatre. We're working on How to Kill a Rose, which has recently been granted Arts Council funding and also a confirmed venue of the Unity Theatre in Liverpool, which is amazing and we're really excited for. On the 23rd of October, we've got our debut opening, which is really exciting. So I wrote How to Kill a Rose and it's written half in dialogue, half in spoken word poetry. And it shows the signs of abuse in a trans relationship and how they can be quite subtle and how, how they can be quite hard to spot. There's also a big age difference between the two characters in the play, which is very common with a lot of trans people. A lot of young trans people often can be, you know, groomed by older people who they think they accept them and feel good, but we see how the relationship slowly gets more abusive and controlling and how it's very subtle, the process, but how it can really affect and also has like the end scene of getting out of abuse and trying to not let that person have weight over you. Amazing. Could you tell me about the research process for that? Yeah, of course. So it's all based on a true story. It's um, all real life experiences. It's a bit of an accumulation of a few life experiences. So it's my experiences and other people that I've interviewed and talked to about their experiences. So it is very truthful, authentic, and it's told by me, I act in it as well, and another trans person acts in it as well. And it's very important to us that we have very strong queer casting and that it's only queer people that tell our stories. How did you take care of people through the process of getting them to tell you their stories? I think the writing is a great way of fictionalizing your experiences and being able to dissociate yourself from things that have happened to you, being able to take a step back, look what happened. And I think it's also a really great way of showing that it's not your fault. I think when you break it down and see each step of what it's like when you're manipulated and abused by someone, you can see how it's not your fault at all and how the whole time they were manipulating you. And although it may feel as if you might have brought it on yourself, you never did. So 
You're so it's really empowering through the process of making it. Yes, definitely. Like I'd never want to paint myself as a victim or anything else as a victim. We're not victims. We're survivors. And, you know, are the things we've been through make us stronger. They don't make us weaker. Amazing. So, Jackie, can you tell me a bit about how you find your characters and the process of wearing them? Because I know you, uh, I've seen the West Yorkshire Queer Stories film that you're in and uh, you talked about uh, how you um, memorialise your mother in part of your uh, preparations. Perhaps if you don't mind, could you share that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a that was a piece I did a few years back um, and it was part of this a sort of I, it felt like of being a part of a virtual museum of memorializing an object that meant something to you as part of a queer stories project for West Yorkshire and I decided to um present a box of my mum's hair um it seems very bizarre but um I explain in the film that the first show I did um I dressed I dressed as a god I dressed as the godfather and I dressed as the godfather in that film and it's a film about or it's a show about um sort of absent or abusive father figures um so I sort of gradually go through and undress and reveal different characters as I as I come and um the reason I wanted to show this hair is because I used to use her gray hair um as my sideburns um when I dressing up as the godfather um and the thing um is that she was uh, she had cancer and she died um a few years ago um it was around the same time that i was kind of discovering ziggy moonlight um the first year in fact and i i used that as my kind of escape i would go down to london for a few days as a means of escaping from the situation that was up in leeds um but then after she passed, I couldn't really use that hair anymore. It was too, it's just too kind of um, important and valuable an object for me to use it. But it sort of, sing, it, it oddly symbolizes this um, merging of these two worlds that I had with her and also my drag, sort of both great sadness and great joy. So could you tell me about some queer theatre you've seen up north, things that really inspired you and you found exciting? Yeah, so we have Homotopia Fest in Liverpool, which is one of the biggest queer arts festival in the whole of the UK. And it is incredible. It really centres northern people. There's theatre companies like Moon Cup Theatre, who did a play called Hip Hip, I'm Gay, which is absolutely incredible. And that Scouse artist, Ashley Owen, who was a Homotopia artist in residence um, last year. So we have such amazing talent in the north that often doesn't get recognised in when we talk about the whole wide-scale theatre scene of the UK. But we're definitely here. We're definitely queer. <laughs> we're definitely here to stay. And I just think Homotopia Festival does a really great job. They've given amazing opportunities to our theatre company, who are obviously at the earlier stages of our career. I'm 20. The other people in my theatre company aren't much older than me. Um, so they've been really great in our development process have gave us great connections have gave us funding have gave us everything we need to make sure we have the best jump start into the industry that we can 
Well, I'm glad to hear that they're developmental as well as being a festival. So can you tell me about the range of work in Homotopia? Does it go from um, dance through to theatre? What's what's included in it? Yeah, all sorts. There's art exhibitions, there's theatre shows, there's music nights, there's all sorts. There's people making children's books about trans people. My great friend Kiara Mohammed, who is an incredible, incredible trans artist, who if anyone doesn't know, they should definitely check him out. Um, you know, we have such an influx of just amazing creative queer people and homotopia are really amazing at centering them and making sure that they can create the work they want to. So was there, has there been a show that really stuck out for you at Homotopia, apart from Moon Cup? Well, well, Moon Cup are great, but there's also um, Milk Presents and Milk Presents do incredible work. I've had an opportunity to work with them in an R&D in the Young Vic before, which was just an amazing experience. They have a show, Joan, which was part of Homotopia in 2019, I think. And um, they do amazing work. It's all about Joan of Arc as like a drag king, like genderqueer person. And it is really amazing and powerful. And it's a one person show, which I always find amazing because if you can keep the audience's attention for the whole time as one person on stage, (laughs) you are a true talent. (laughs) How important do you think it is to employ queer people in queer productions? I think it's essential to a queer production to have an all queer cast and even we go a step further and make sure we have an all queer production team. So it's not just the people you see on stage that are queer, it's the people you see backstage. And I think that's really important to provide opportunities for our community because a lot of queer people don't feel accepted in cisnormative, heteronormative spaces. So if they can't be empowered and centred in our own stories, on our own work, then where we'll be, be centred and empowered, where we'll be, be listened to. It creates a much safer space and just lets everyone know that no, there's no judgment in there. Everyone can just be themselves and be their authentic selves and they will be celebrated for that. So is it easy to find the artists that you need? I think it's easier than people think it is. I've done a lot of queer work now, so I have a lot of connections with the community, which has been really helpful. But if you're struggling to find queer people, queer production teams, just do call outs, make call outs, put them on Twitter, um, tag some, you know, queer theatre makers. They'll have the contacts and stuff. So it's just about making sure that even if your platform isn't the biggest, that you utilise people who have big platforms who want to help and want to make sure that queer people are getting opportunities and jobs. So basically the talent is out there and we need to make more of an effort to find it. Is that what you're saying? That's definitely what I'm saying. You know, there's an influx of queer creatives, but they don't necessarily get acknowledged in the mainstream or even the underground scenes. So it's just about looking for them. And if you can't find the people, then you're not doing enough research because they're definitely out there. (laughs) Meg? I mean... I am totally 100%. I think there should be queer people behind the scenes as as well as being in front of the camera, on the stage, whatever, because it is impossible to tell our stories without us being behind the scenes as well. You know, production decisions are made that will influence how the actors then portray that from way back in the rehearsal slash 
making process. If those voices aren't present there, then in the scripts there will be mistakes, in the design there will be mistakes, there will be things that aren't true to us. So if we aren't represented across the spectrum of the mm. creating process, it won't be a true representation is how I feel. Because mm. uh, wasn't it Russell T Davies who said recently he only wanted uh, gay actors to play gay roles? Is that right? I think that's right. What do you think about that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I'm actually, I, I wrote a piece about this recently uh, mm. for my uni about why James Corden shouldn't have been cast in the prom. Um, this, is, this is true for any marginalised person. If you get someone in who isn't part of that identity to tell the story without us present, it's just, it's offensive to our experience in many ways. What about you, Jackie? What do you, do you, what do you think about that? About gay actors playing gay characters. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting. I think I'm one of those people that's a bit on the fence. I think it depends on the situation and the context. Um, and I think to an extent these, you know, if you have the right actor, I don't think that should, as whether the sexuality of the character should be the deciding factor into who is cast. But at the same time, I completely understand the idea of having that. It's the the upbringing, it's the experience that you have as someone who is of that type. You know, if you're gay, then your your upbringing has been completely different and has been defined by the fact that you have had to come to terms with that, um, and that can inform the process as an actor. But the whole role of being an actor is to is to understand how to embody another another character um so um so actors just do your job <laughs> it's more than that Shabina. it's more than that <laughs> i'm i'm biased though um mm -hmm. i mean this is the thing is like i have to play straight characters i've i've had to play mm. more straight characters. i don't think i've ever played a a character that has gay tendencies in in my education so far and so I've had to embody that so then I, obviously but I mean obviously it's to do with minorities it's to do with that as well it's to do with representation I'm all for um having more um, um people of minority backgrounds and also trans and um, queer people involved in production because I think it, it creates that this, this space that allows for discussions to happen and also for safety of other people, to f for them to feel represented and to work with people that aren't just, you know, cis, white, <laughs> straight men. <laughs> yeah. um, so. But I also think you have to just remember the role of the actor is to know this character and in, in doing so to, to recognise the research that beh behind that. You know, you can tell a good actor because of the way that they've completely understood every aspect of that role, regardless of what sexuality or they are and mm. how that works. I think it can't work for race, <laughs> not in today's world. But in sexuality, no. I think there's a there's a you know there's a playing mm. field that you can you know definitely. Thank you, and, Meg. And I was going to say, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of debate whether it can be sexuality-wise. I tend to fall on the side that I think sexuality should be played by a person with the same sexuality. But I think for trans, this is a non-question, but I wanted to read out a little bit of this 
essay I wrote because it's slightly more okay. eloquent than I'm being right now. But um, theatre and film and TV have a history of believing that any actor can play any role because that is what acting is. But rarely is the question posed as the consequences of an industry that has class and biv- privilege ingrained into the system, giving mm. marginalised roles to non-minority actors and praising them for playing up or unlocking minority parts of themselves. Um while it's possible for any actor to play any role when it comes to minority casting, I would argue that it does more harm than good when the story centers around issues deeply exploring that identity. The message it broadcasts varies from community to community, but all of them invalidate each community struggle. And I then go on to quote Disclosure because nothing beats Disclosure. If you haven't watched Disclosure, I think that pins oh, yeah, down yeah. a lot of points beautifully. But um, I'm up, I'm all here for debate. <laughs> so there's been. Um... We're we're in this golden age of television, aren't we? I think there's been some amazing, and also the fact that we've been in lockdown. And you just mentioned Disclosure, which is on uh, Netflix. Netflix. There's been a there's been some really interesting things on TV, haven't there? Like um, it's a sin. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's amazing. Or did you like? Tell me where you liked it, Jackie. It's it's only five episodes, and yet it seems to the kind of debates and discussions and the atmosphere that talk from what I've heard. Um, I was chatting with a director who mentioned that she was um, around the same age at that time and had experienced that and how realistic it was and how maybe not so much realistic, but how a lot of the discussions and debates that were talked about were very much embodied in that. And I, I think I love some of the monologues in that, the very final one. I won't, I won't put any spoilers, but the way that I think, you know, it's not just a monologue that fits within that um, scene. It's something that can be, that, that spreads a universal message about how do you treat other human beings? You know, I, th- I thought that was lovely. So um, the last time I uh, saw any queer theatre was about a year ago. It was at Theatre in the Mill in Bradford. They had a... Um, a weekend um, programmed by new queers on the block. They are like they were like producers, um, and they work with um, people of migrant, working class, people of color, disabled, unemployed people who identify as queer. And they put on a whole weekend of work. And Nathaniel Hall, first time, I think he he took it up to the Fringe, best um, Edinburgh Fringe, and it's about. Um, how he acquired HIV the first time he had sex as a young teen. Um, and it's about, so therefore it's about growing up with the, with that virus. It was beautifully done. You know, the, it was very, it was memoir, uh, but also social history and a one man performance. So it was beautifully constructed in that. Um, Isma Almas is Bradford Pakistani. Uh, and she's a stand-up comedian um, who adopted uh, a black child, a boy, deliberately. She wanted to adopt a black Muslim boy because they're the hardest to get adopted. Um, and it's about her relationship with him and her partner, how um, he preferred the partner <laughs> to her for a very long time. Um but I think she's won him over finally. So um, it was amazing. It was wonderful to see. Uh, it was mainly um, one hour long pieces, mainly autobiographical. Um, 
Yeah, and BJ Patel um, did a piece about growing up uh, in a corner shop. Ah, Meg, do you know him? Have you seen it? Yes, I um, did a workshop with them and they're wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Why? Oh, it was on, um, it was our first, I'm a student at Rose Bruford currently, and it was our first uh, ever lesson was a workshop with VJ uh, talking about access riders and how to present to your own access needs to companies you're working with. And it was just, just wonderful, just a wonderful human. Yes, I, I did that with him as well. It was wonderful, wasn't it? Um, could you share with us the sort of things he asks for prior to going into a venue? Can you remember? Yes, I can remember a bit. So it was very much um, the conversation around it was very much all of us have our own individual access needs, um, whether that just be very complicated things like neurodivergence in my case or anything but the idea is well if celebrities can ask for really stupid specific things before going to a venue why can't we ask for things that will actually just help improve our life experience um i th i found that kind of very revolutionary but also seemed so obvious as soon as it was said that yeah i should be able to say hey i am neurodivergent here is how you can help me have a better experience within your venue it just it's just so so smart so clever i thought so too like it's okay just to say i need uh somewhere that's quiet and dark that i can go to to be by myself and or i need exactly it was just so simple but it's just actually articulating what you actually need i think for a lot of us especially uh, people of color um you know it's like you you're afraid to ask for even the simplest mm. things because you're so grateful to get in there at all do you know what i mean same same with trans people and queer people it's just like wow i've been letting the venue people are trusting me i don't <laughs> i don't feel like i can ask for more things i can't you know there's no gender neutral toilet here okay i guess i'll go in one of the gender toilets then and not make a fuss over it no we need to kick up a fuss because we are valued and we should see value in ourselves so other venues start seeing value in us too Exactly. Exactly. I thought it was very empowering and very uh, made you think about those things which uh, we never ask for, you know, suggesting we'd be more assertive. Well, Jackie, did you, were there any uh, other topics you thought we should have covered that we didn't? Well, I was um, thinking actually um, when you approached me about to come on, on this, I was like, oh, I don't necessarily know what kind of uh, experiences are based up north now. And I think one of the re big reasons um, I can't quite, I feel a little bit out of touch with it is because one of the reasons I came down to London is simply because I couldn't find much work based on my drag stuff up in Leeds and up around north. Um, I don't know if it's changing or not, um, but I think the disparity, the, well, the, yeah, the disparity and the discrepancies in terms of work available for artists and theatre practitioners and things like that um, in London versus in the North is definitely something to, you could do a whole other podcast about that. That's, <laughs> and yeah. see what, what goes on because it's quite interesting. Um, but the disparity of opportunities between the North and the South, yes. All the money is in the South and in the North, mm. it t most of the work happens through cliques, I think. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Or organisations yeah. with uh, very 
nice people who are at the heart of it and trying to get more representation up. Whereas um, London, it's there's a lot of venues and it's almost like I think there's enough that they have this air of competition about them that, you know, having this drag scene and having this cabaret scene and having theatre that represents minorities and queer identities is actually quite hip and trendy um, and in at the moment. So that's a completely different dialogue compared to up north. Why do you think that is, Meg? I was going to I was going to say I was wondering if it might be an audience thing because I can think of I was looking at Newcastle and thinking about the venues there are plenty of wonderful new venues that are coming up and big venues small venues cabaret venues and I was wondering why there wasn't more of a queer scene in Newcastle and I wonder if it is just that people don't think there's an audience for it or whether it is just that I know a lot of queers who are Northern who have moved to London because that is where the job opportunities are and we need to pay rent, essentially. Um, so I wonder if there, I think there is such a huge possibility yeah. for a larger scene in the North of queer theatre, but I don't know how to kickstart it, mm. but I want to know when it happens and when I can come back. Felix, out of the panel, you're the only one that hasn't been lured away by the pull of the big smoke. Um, why do you think so many queer artists head south? You know, I think obviously there's a lot of opportunities down south, but I also think when there's a lot of opportunities, there's a lot of people going for the same things. And obviously, you know, there's just a lot more people in London than there is in Liverpool. But in Liverpool, we have such a rich theatre scene. We have such a rich sense of community. And there's plenty of opportunities up here for me. I don't necessarily feel that I need to go to London because I feel that in the Liverpool scene, there's enough work for me here. I have a great network around me and I do still get work in London. Like recently, I was at the Dom Air Warehouse doing an R&D with Tabby Lamb who is one of my favourite theatre makers ever. So that was a kind of full circle moment for me. So I think, you know, if people really want you, you're going to have it. If people in London really want you to work on their productions, you're still going to have the opportunity to. I don't think it necessarily means that it makes you any less of an artist to be in a smaller city. I just think it means that your work's different and the way you create it is completely different. Um, sounds as though you've got the best of both worlds and a cat. <laughs> yeah, my cat is here. She's <laughs> angry that I'm not giving her attention. <laughs> so, Meg, um, is there anything, anything you'd like to say to wrap up? Um, I guess I should plug some social medias or whatever. So I'm um, at Meg McGrady on everything. You can follow the phase at the phase musical and Queerly Productions at Queerly Prods. So go follow the things probably follow you back so how can people find out more about your work felix so you can follow me on instagram or twitter at felix mufti not hard to remember just my name it's great having my name no one else has it i feel bad if anyone else does have my name and they search it and it's just a load <laughs> of trans stuff <laughs> and you can also follow on instagram at transcend theater where we'll have more about our play that's coming up and about the outreach that we're doing with community groups which is really really exciting <laughs> thank you darling Jackie? Yes. Well, I'll, I'll plug as well. <laughs> I'm on Instagram um, at Ziggy Moonlight. That's S-I-G-I -I, Moonlight. 
Uh, and I'm on Twitter as at Jackie Bardalone. I haven't decided yet whether to uh, embrace my drag and mix it with my acting profile or not. <laughs> I'm on the fence. Um, but that's where you can find me. But we can see your work on the West Yorkshire Queer Archives. You can, that's- yes. Yes. And I've, I've, that's one of the posts on, um, on Instagram. So if you'd like to take a look. And I've got a link tree as well. If on the Instagram, so you can sort of have a look at all the various bits and pieces I've I've been in. That's fantastic. It's been a lovely. Um, it's been lovely being able to talk to Meg, Felix, and Jackie. Thank you so much for your time, and good luck with all the wonderful projects that you're doing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hi, folks. In this segment, I will be chatting to artists across an array of disciplines, from writers to performers, backstage and anything in between about their experience of working in theatre. I would love to welcome Roma Havers. Roma is a theatre maker, poet and performer based in Manchester. She is part of the poetry collective Young Identity and can be regularly found performing around Manchester. Her work has been described as confessional storytelling, which is funny and clever, Roma, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much for having me. I think we should just jump straight in with the first question. Queer Contact 2021 is a celebration of queer culture. How does it feel to have your film Lob platformed by the festival? And can you tell me a little more about the piece? Yeah, sure. So it feels really like a full circle moment for me because Contact as a theatre is actually where I was one of the first theatres in Manchester I had any contact with. I um, started running workshops from their cafe just because they would let me be there with like 15 people (laughs) when I started um, this university society. And then now to have um, my film be part of one of the biggest festivals that they run every year and to be alongside other queer artists is really exciting. Um, Lob is a tennis dance poetry show and it's about (laughs) (laughs) it's about really it's about um different ways of thinking about queer bodies and sporting spaces but um it's an autobiographical piece about starting from the story of when I was five and my grandma found out I was left-handed and really thought I was going to be a tennis player um, and sort of how that was the first disappointment of many in terms of my sporting <laughs> prowess and linking that to queerness in a lot of ways. But really, it is a fun show. Um, and we found out that we were making it into a film in November, maybe maybe November, December. So um, it's been really tough on the team to try and pull that together. So I'm really proud of everyone for becoming film producers and film directors rather than theatre directors in quite a short amount of time so it's very exciting so what has your journey looked like to becoming a theatre maker is there a moment you're most proud of and maybe a challenge you've overcome so um I do my degree is in English and drama so I definitely do have a background in theatre stuff but I quite quickly moved away more to the writing side so I was working as a performance poet for about three four years well I still do um and then 
at the end of my master's, um, I wrote this big piece and I was like, oh, but why don't I just make it a show? Knowing nothing um, and then happened to get it picked up by UK Young Artists and went and did it off the back of nothing. If I wow. knew anything about what I was doing, I would not have done that. <laughs> um, and that was really the first way in. And then with Lob, which I would say is really my first theatre show, um, I got a bursary through the LGBT Arts and Culture Consortium, which is um, an amazing project that links loads of theatres in Manchester and runs bursaries every year for new artists. So quite a um, haphazard entry, I would say. But I've been performing and in theatre spaces a long time doing performance poetry work. Would you say that that sort of like haphazard entry maybe was the challenge and the the triumph all at the same time or was there a moment where you went this is difficult but I love it yeah I think it was in the sense of um when I first started Lob someone said to me you need a producer and I don't think I really knew what a producer was (laughs) right but I'd done a lot of that work but I just hadn't done it as well as I could have because I was doing all of the other work so that was a lot of the early challenges and like having no money and all of that stuff. Um, but that means that I now, I think, work better with a lot of the team that are working on things yeah. because I understand that all of the jobs are important rather than being like, well, of course, someone will do my costume. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about your decision to stay working in the North? Um, it wasn't, I don't know if it was a decision um I just love Manchester um and I love being here and I love the artistic community here um I work really closely with Young Identity which is a poetry collective um that are based in Manchester and they gave me a lot of my first work um and still do give me a loads of opportunities um and I just can't, I can't imagine moving somewhere else and having to build that again I think yeah. um it's it's hard for some people to maybe understand how much like it's not even like networking it's just like you have to know how all the theatres work and all it's just so much stuff yeah and I just love I just love Manchester I just love Manchester and the lots of cities in the north that I've worked in yeah I can't imagine being anywhere else definitely not yeah definitely there's an ongoing conversation about characters on stage and screen not being defined by transness what are your thoughts on this um so I would first start by saying that um I don't identify as trans so I would I I'm not speaking um for trans people on this I work with a lot of people in the queer community and um ac- across identities as well and I do move through the world as a visibly gender queer person so I definitely have some intersecting experiences um I think this question comes from a kind of strange place in the sense that like it's true for every identity experience that you don't want to just represent one narrative about that experience because there are a huge array of people who have different experiences it's like saying should we only represent one kind of story about women well, no, obviously yeah. not. We've 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 gone beyond that point. There are more stories to be told, but yeah, it it seems like a strange question that comes from a place of 
not letting people tell their own stories. Because as soon as you let people tell their own stories, there's variety because people are different from each other. Yeah. Right. So do you think that queer narratives should be told by queer artists? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think that means that if you are not queer, you shouldn't put queer people in your stories um, the same way that, I don't know, as a man, you shouldn't ever put <laughs> any any women in your stories. Right, they can be right. in the stories as people, but if you're what you're telling is that story, I think there's a real interrogation that needs to happen of like what actual knowledge you have um, and why you want to tell that story, for starters. And also that there are so many... Um, there's not enough people getting opportunities to tell those stories. So why are we not giving that to the amazing writers who aren't getting enough opportunities? Yeah, Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, so, you know, were there any, you know, characters growing up that you could identify with on stage or screen? And is that why perhaps you feel like you want to support queer arts? Um I was always a very strange child in terms of identification. Um, so I don't think <laughs> I was really obsessed with like the lamppost from Narnia at one point. Right. Objects were a big thing for me. <laughs> I was um, very into Peter Pan for a long time, which I think still stands. I would love to make a show about Peter Pan um, and how they um, in all the original shows. It was all like very bitch women who played Peter Pan, which I think is very interesting. Um, Can you dig into that a little bit more? Um, I think it's this like eternal state. Um, I think a kind of youthfulness was very... Um, like I was very scared of growing up as a child because I didn't know what that looked like for me. So the idea of like having a static state that you then could experiment within I think was um but also just like in terms of gender expression that was where that was an ideal for me um rather than identifying with um any particular like adult man characters that kind of boyishness that is like magic in some way was um very appealing um yeah also like i liked fantasy books <laughs> so like flying around an island sounded great fighting <laughs> fighting pirates absolutely i mean who doesn't want to fight a pirate right exactly yeah <laughs> um so you know it's been said that you know we can't be a better society until we see an entire society what work do you want to see being created in support of queer arts um I actually think we need to, not that I am anti-society as a whole, but I think a lot of the rhetoric in the last, like, while we were growing up was around, like, this idea of big society and, like, that being a politicised way of being, like, you're all responsible for yourself and also other people around you, but in a way that is, like, we don't have any responsibility as the government. Um, and loads of people got lost in that system. Um, so I'm always a little bit wary around things that are about like society being whole and inclusive rather than allowing communities to exist on a smaller level. Like, I think it's as long as queer communities are allowed to thrive and there aren't like active people who get in their way and they're able to access funds um, and resources, I don't think there's any problem with 
that being self-enclosed in a way. Um, yeah. And I'm very interested in working in like grassroots projects where like like queer contact which is less so this but like queer contact in the sense that like all of the artists are queer rather than being one queer artist there's like one of every kind of experience that like is hot topic to reference there's one of each and therefore no one gets to be having conversations across difference within and building places and groups and organizations that are specifically for certain people um i think has to be done properly before we can be like okay this entire society includes you because it's not it's built for certain people of course and how do we have a critical relationship with popular entertainment and the sort of broader word of society so that we continue to learn um I think that is a big question. It is a big question. <laughs> but, um, I think generally with critical um, and thinking critically, it's just about questioning every little aspect and how that came to be the standard and how that became to be symbolic in some way. Anything that appears to be a standard of some kind and like a normal of some kind is probably constructed out of excluding people and exp- and exploiting people. So I think that's a starting point. But also um, we don't do enough of this because our schools are particularly bad at teaching children how to like actually look at art critically because they'll be like, this is a metaphor. But they won't be like, this is why metaphors matter, which they deeply do because they're really ingrained into everything we do. Um, So that like that's a starting point, because most of what we do is symbolic in some way. So if we don't engage with the fact that it's symbolic, how can we change it? And most things can be changed. I think that's a big thing. So what does the rest of 2021 look like for you? For me, um, a lot of it is up in the air. As with most organisations, there's like triple plans of what we will be allowed to do. Um, I'm hoping to tour Lob, whether that is touring the film version or touring the actual theatrical piece. Um, I'm working on a couple of new projects, possibly um, a new show that will be more cast like there's going to be more people in it because I'm a little bit tired of doing (laughs) solo work. Um, Lots more teaching in schools um, and I am working towards a poetry collection as well. So hopefully that'll be somewhere at some point, maybe in the next year, who knows? (laughs) Amazing. That sounds really exciting. Um, I'd like to end with a quote of yours. There's so much pressure to explain yourself and I find lots of comfort as well as joy in messy meaning, making and puns. I think that's brilliant. Um, Roma, it has just been so great chatting to you and I literally could just sit and talk to you forever. Um, So thank you for coming on the podcast. No problem at all.